Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is an old friend of mine, Professor Robert Dalek. Bob is one of the most distinguished historians of the American presidency. He's written acclaimed books on presidents including Franklin D. Roosevelt, Harry Truman, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan. He was born in New York, undertook his undergraduate studies at the University of Illinois before earning an MA and a PhD from Columbia University. He's won many prestigious book prizes. He's taught at Columbia, UCLA, Oxford, the University of Texas, and many other fine universities. And on top of all that, Bob is a mensch. He's a real gentleman and someone whom I've been lucky enough to know for several decades. Welcome, Bob Dalek, to the director's chair. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction. Bob, you were born in Brooklyn during the Great Depression. So tell me a bit about your childhood. Yes, well... It was essentially a Jewish ghetto where I grew up Uh in Flatbush. And what was amazing as I think back on it is that at my elementary school, which was a public school, and the kids there, it was all Jewish. There were just two uh, Gentile kids in my class, and they were pretty big classes. And there was one Italian kid and one Irish kid. We were very mindful of these ethnicities and the background because, remember, this was in the 1940s. Of course, there was so much uh, concern about uh, the what turned out to be called the Holocaust. Mm. So, you know, we were very mindful of... The way, of course, students later were mindful of atomic bombs Mm. and of possible uh, nuclear destruction. But it was, you know, a a, a rich education. My high school, which was called James Madison High School, named after, of course, Mm. the uh, president, uh, James Madison. But my high school graduated uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the um, Mm -hmm. member of the Supreme Court, Mm. Charles Schumer, who is the current uh, Democratic leader in uh, the United States Senate. Mm. So it was really a a rich environment in terms of education. And we were reared on the understanding that education was the path to success in America, that uh, you could get ahead, but you needed to be uh, well-educated and that uh, you could have a profession. And so uh, uh, it was, in that sense, a a rather attractive and exciting time. And what was it that drew you to political history, Bob? What gave you the audacious idea that maybe you could spend your life writing about great figures from history? Well, I think it was the fact that I grew up in a time when Franklin Roosevelt was president of the United States. Mm -hmm. There was enormous admiration for him and uh, for the fact that he was accomplishing a great deal and that he, above all, brought uh, recent migrants to the United States 
into the mainstream of the country's life. Remember, in the 1920s, there was such a divide in the country between urban recent uh, arrivals in those cities and the older uh, rural uh, stock, so to speak. And Roosevelt was brilliant at catering to immigrants from Italy, uh, from uh, Britain, from Germany, uh, from Ireland. And America was really very much seen as a haven at that. Mm. So all that kind of uh, discussion and ambience, I would say, drew me to an interest in uh, presidential leadership and politics. And so I loved history. I found, but particularly modern history, Mm. you see. Although I also had a course in college in ancient Greek and Roman history. And I was discouraged from pursuing that as an expertise when I was told that I had to know Greek, I had to know Latin, uh, German, French. And uh, uh, and even though I took a number of language classes, uh, it seemed to be uh, too great a reach. And so the easiest thing to do was to focus on American history. But when I went to graduate school at Columbia, I began with a principal interest in European and German history Mm. in particular. But because I had a teacher named Richard Hofstetter, Mm -hmm. who was a great American historian, that drew me to American history. So, Bob, one of FDR's achievements was to bring a young Robert Dalek into the field of US history. You and I first corresponded when I was writing my master's degree at Oxford and then my doctorate on FDR, which later became a book, Rendezvous with Destiny. And I've always found you, I must say, very generous with your time and advice. Let me ask you, one of the reasons I wrote about FDR was that I admired and liked him. You've written about lots of different presidents. Is it easier to write about presidents that you admire, or doesn't that matter? Can you find interest in all sorts of characters? Well, you know, Michael, you can find interest in all sorts of characters, but I think it's somewhat easier to uh, write about presidents who you admire, Mm. who you find accomplished and newsworthy, praiseworthy. Mm. You know, I spent 14 years writing two very big volumes about Lyndon Johnson. Mm. He's not the most attractive man you could uh, possibly deal with. In fact, Mm. there's the wonderful anecdote that at one point he asked Dina Atchison, who had been Harry Truman's Secretary of State, he said, supposed to have said to Atchison, why don't people like me? And Atchison is supposed to have replied, because you are not a very likable man. (laughs) And I think that uh, was uh, something that stayed with me. Mm. But also, there's a challenge in writing about less admirable figures Mm. in history, because you also need to be somewhat detached. It's not fair for you to, so to speak, beat up on them or just be 
uh, hostile and negative toward them because our objective is to write about them with some uh, distance from the time they lived in and mm. a, a sense of objectivity about what they did and what they achieved and what they failed at. And uh, because if we don't write with a degree of objectivity, uh, it, it just is another polemic, so to speak. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you for your objective assessment of a few presidents over the last uh, 50 or 70 years before we come to President Trump and then President-elect Biden. Let me stay with FDR just for a second. I've been engaged in a debate with an old friend of mine for 20 years about who was the most important statesman of the 20th century. He says Winston Churchill. I say Franklin Roosevelt. So I I need you to weigh in and give me your verdict, Bob. Well, that's an awfully difficult choice because both of them are so noteworthy and admirable figures Mm -hmm. in that they were the ones that stood up to fascism and Hitler and Nazism. But, you know, in a way, you might give the edge to FDR because Churchill was presiding over a country that had no choice but Mm. to fight back. And Roosevelt was dealing with an isolationist America, which was antagonistic to involvement in international politics Mm. and certainly into any war. Roosevelt knew that they were going to declare war on us, and he didn't have to take an initiative that would have inflamed the isolationists in America. And so in that sense, for Roosevelt, it was a greater hurdle Mm. to uh, command the country to uh, fight in World War II. And in a sense, Churchill, of course, had no choice. But of course, he did a great job in pulling Ireland and uh, all of Britain together, mm. and uh, and bringing, of course, uh, Australia, New Zealand into mm. the fight on the side of the Allies. Thank you for settling that bet for me, Bob. That's been troubling <laughs> me for twenty years. So thank you. Let me fast forward to JFK. You wrote an outstanding biography of President Kennedy in Unfinished Life. There's another big one by Frederick Logeval, which is about to be released. Every year, there are dozens of books on on the Kennedys. Of course, Kennedy only served as president for just over 1,000 days, and many would argue that he achieved only modest successes and that the more substantial reforms were not put through until the Johnson administration. That's right. Is all this attention on JFK's justified, or is this really down to the glamour of the Kennedys? I think a lot of it, Michael, has to do with the glamour of the Kennedys, Mm. and also the tragedy Mm. of the fact that he was a relatively young man Mm. and, of course, broke down the barrier Mm. to having a Catholic Mm. as president. And one of the things I would say here or interject here is that I find it so interesting that if Biden finally becomes president, Mm. which he will, He'll only be the second Catholic Mm. in American history to have achieved Mm, uh, 
the status of president. Mm. And so uh, Kennedy had to fight a very sharp political battle to get to the White House. But it's also, of course, the tragedy that here was this very attractive, handsome young man who was an inspiration to his own generation and gave speeches that were inspiring. And I think that he stands more as a, not such a greatly accomplished president, but as one who was admirable in overcoming his own limitations Mm -hmm. and physical uh, health problems, disabilities, if you want to call it that. Mm. That's, I think, what gives people so much attraction to him at this point. And, you know, Michael, people don't remember a great deal about what presidents do or what their Mm -hmm. uh, particular records are. But with the advent of television, Mm. it's really images that stick with people. Mm. And remember that that first debate that Kennedy had with Mm. Richard Nixon in September 1960, Mm. people who listened to it on the radio thought Nixon had won the debate. But the great bulk of the population who watched it on television Mm. thought that Kennedy was the winner. Mm. He looked more presidential uh, and he was more attractive than Nixon. Mm. So images have become with moving pictures and television, uh, they've become essential to uh, political advancement in this country. All right, let me fast forward to another American political dynasty, the Bushes. George H.W. Bush was underestimated, I would say, for many years, partly because he was not re-elected. You mentioned the presidential debate in 1960, of course, the indelible image of the one of those presidential debates in 92 was George H.W. Bush looking at his watch yep. and hoping that the debate with Bill Clinton would finish soon. But the pendulum has swung back a bit for George H.W. and he's in the middle of a bit of a mini renaissance. Similarly, George W. Bush, 15 years ago, people were very down on on George W. Bush because of the failure of the Iraq War. Yes. Next to President Trump, he looks a little bit better, certainly more civic-minded, a more admirable person, I would say, than President Trump. But how do you think the historians will judge the presidencies of the Bushes, Bob? Well, I think they will be fascinated by the fact that it was a kind of dynasty, mm-hmm. that you had the Adams family that uh, gave us a kind of dynastic family that uh, still looms large in American history, and that the Bushes will, it's not so much that either one of them or any of them in particular achieved such extraordinary things, but the fact that in a television and media era, they could have two members of their family reach the highest political Mm. office. Mm. And so I think, you know, but what also is so important is who comes after in the presidency. Mm. And I think, as you were just saying, alongside of Donald Trump, the Bushes, and in particular, the more recent Bush, George W. Bush, Mm. gained, I think, a lot of traction Mm. with the public. 
over the fact that he comes across as a more dignified and presidential figure than Donald Trump does. All right, I'm going to ask you about about President Trump, but first of all, I want to ask you about Barack Obama. If you can, first of all, give us your still early assessment of the Obama legacy, but also tell us a bit about your personal interactions with President Obama. He was often described as professorial and true to form, he held multiple dinners at the White House with historians during his presidency. And you were a regular guest at some of those dinners along with other presidential historians. Yes. Tell us about those dinners. Were they fun? What did you learn about President Obama when you had dinner with him? The thing I found most striking about President Obama in personal terms is that he was a man who was very self-contained. There were five dinners Mm. that uh, I attended with other historians, Mm. and I sat next to him twice, and there was never any small talk. He wasn't a sort of typical glad-handing politician, and I've met some of those, Mm -hmm. and you know, they meet you and say, Bob, it's so good to see you again. Mm. And I thought to myself, my God, you're so full of it. You never met me in your life. Mm-hmm. But this is good old fashioned, one might say, sidewalk American politics, mm. glad hand. Mm. But I didn't, my impression of Obama was that it was like having a seminar with other academics mm-hmm. about. American history, about American culture. Uh, I I, I told him that his Affordable Care Act was a really step forward in the kinds of things that the most progressive presidents in our history had done, Mm. like Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and FDR, and Lyndon Johnson with his uh, extraordinary civil rights legislation. And of course, what was most interesting was that he was a man of African-American descent. Mm. And who could believe that we would have a man of that uh, ethnicity, of that background in the White House? I mean, my growing up in America, that was a racially segregated America, and then Uh, the great struggles in the 1960s to uh, overcome that. And so this was an amazing achievement that he could do that. And he didn't have a long political career before that, of course. Mm. He had been recently elected senator from Illinois, but he will be remembered as a very significant two-term president who broke the color barrier Mm. and of course, facilitated the possibility that we will have a woman as president in the not-too-distant future. All right. Now, Barack Obama was followed in the White House by a different sort of man, Donald Trump. Mr. Trump is still president, but the dust is starting to settle on his presidency. How would you evaluate the Trump legacy? Well, I think he will be remembered as a poor president, that someone who did not accomplish a lot either in foreign policy or in domestic affairs. And there's something very off-putting about his 
administration. And it's the fact that he comes across to people as self-serving, mm-hmm. that this is what animates him, that first, last, and always is Donald Trump. Mm. And the fact now that he refuses to honor the tradition of peacefully turning over from a defeated president to a new president, the power of the office. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have a an attempted coup or mm. we're going to uh, have a bloody upheaval, but people certainly are on edge about the fact that he will not concede that he lost the White House mm. to Joe Biden, and that, of course, but also, I think, undermines uh, Trump's standing and reputation is that Biden comes across as an attractive, uh, kindly, decent man, mm. and alongside of Trump, who comes across as so self-serving and in many ways cruel because of that example of the children mm who were separated from their parents Mm. at the southern border of the United States, and that there are several hundred of those children who apparently remain uh, ununited with their parents and that they can't find their parents. Mm. And it's like they've turned uh, 600 or so students, or rather uh, young people, into uh, orphans. And I think this will be a cloud that will uh, remain over Donald Trump's reputation. And uh, he will continue to fight because he apparently is going to set up some kind of uh, radio television station Mm -hmm. that will keep him in the public eye for the uh, foreseeable future. And after all, one does have to admit that even though he lost this presidential contest by some 5 million votes, Mm. which is a huge number, he nevertheless has commanded the support of over 70 million American voters. Mm. But, you know, also the question is, will he be indicted by the state of New York Mm. after he leaves the White House? Because there is a good deal of talk about that. And if that happens to him, that will, of course, be unprecedented for any president. Now, of course, there's talk also that he might resign and let his vice president, Pence, pardon him. But that could only be for federal crimes. Mm. It wouldn't be for state indictments, which could be coming down the pike against uh, Trump. So the story is not finished here yet. And what happens in the future will also help to shape his reputation. And remember, Jimmy Carter did not come across as a very effective or successful president, but he has had a highly successful post-presidential career. And so that's part of the Trump story that remains to be uh, Mm. seen. 
It's hard to imagine uh, President Trump getting involved in international peacekeeping activities and building houses for poor people uh, in his post-presidential period, but that's right. But let's see. Bob, notwithstanding President Trump's refusal to concede defeat, Joe Biden is set to become the 46th President of the United States on the 20th of January 2021. The circumstances of his accession to office are not auspicious. Can you give us some sense of historic parallels that you see here and and tell us, do you think Mr. Biden will be up to the challenge? What kind of president do you think Joe Biden may make? Well, there have been other presidents who faced a daunting challenges. Abraham Lincoln taking the highest office in 1861 as the country dissolved into a bloody civil war that mm cost uh, over 600,000 American lives. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, of course, coming into the presidency in 1933, when the United States was at the uh, depths of an economic uh, collapse. And there was talk at the time that the country wasn't going to uh, survive with its democratic capitalist system. And so that was very challenging mm. for Roosevelt. And Richard Nixon faced a very tough transition in 1969 because we were in the depths mm-hmm. of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, some 55,000 Americans perished in that conflict. Mm. And in 1968, there was so much turmoil in the country that a French travel agent advertised, see America while it lasts. And <laughs> there, there was a, a kind of sense that is uh, America coming to an end. Mm. And of course, it didn't end. And so I don't think Biden quite faces uh, crises that are similar to those that uh, Lincoln and FDR mm. and uh, even Nixon faced in the Vietnam War. But there is a challenge for him because a, a great challenge because after all, the country, its economy has faltered. And most of all, we are in a health crisis, a pandemic mm. seems to even exceed what the country faced in 1918 with the Spanish flu. And that was another president who, uh, Warren G. Harding, who faced a great crisis in that Spanish flu. Mm. And the economy in 1921 went into a downturn. And Harding, who was no uh, world beater in any way, uh, said, I wish there were already uh, a book that could tell me what to do about the economy. Mm-hmm. And then he added, but even if there were one, I couldn't read it anyway. So at least he had a kind of uh, self-understanding that uh, I think seems to escape uh, Donald Trump. Bob, let me ask you about Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. She will be the first female vice president as well as the first black vice president and the first South Asian Vice President. It's early days, but what are your impressions of Vice President-elect Harris? Do you think she will be a significant figure in American politics in coming years? Oh, I think so. I think she seems to be a very effective 
politician. And she established herself as a very successful, ambitious politician in California, where, of course, women were accepted as high political officials. But I think she will stand out in the vice presidency. And I think Joe Biden will be very accommodating with her. And she will be his successor candidate because I don't think Biden will serve more than one term. Mm. And of course, by the start of his second term, he'd be 81 years old. Mm. I think she will then be running for the presidency in 2024. And what will be very interesting in another guess that uh, the Republican Party in 2024, my guess, will nominate the woman who has been governor of South Carolina mm-hmm. and then ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley. And it will be a fascinating moment in American history because we've never had a woman come close to the presidency. Mm. And if we have two women who are running for president, obviously one of them is going to become president. So I think we are moving into a groundbreaking era. And I think this is going to be a very interesting four years. And I think that uh, uh, Biden will be an effective president because he's a good politician and he's not an ideologue who is going to hold all the Republicans at arm's length. He will try and get some legislation passed by dealing with the Republicans in a collegial way. So I think it's going to be an interesting four years. And I think this talk of uh, America uh, coming to an end, so to speak, I'm very hopeful. Now, I'm an optimist, and uh, I think that we won't go on forever this way, but I think for the time being, I think America will be back in pretty good shape, and I think we will see some impressive international leadership too. Bob, it's lovely to end on an optimistic note. Thank you for describing your journey from James Madison High in Flatbush to the White House (laughs) residence and Thank you in particular for letting us tap into your enormous historical knowledge as we live through these remarkable days. So thank you very much, Bob Dalek, for speaking with me today on the Director's Chair. Well, my pleasure and best regards to all the wonderful people in Australia where I visited once and had the pleasure of meeting you directly. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove, with production assistance from Madeline Neist. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.